Hi, everybody. My name is Rick. I'm a recovered alcoholic. I'm interesting to hear what I have to say, too. Uh, I'd like to welcome our newcomer. Uh, whether you feel like it or not, you're the most important person in here. Uh, doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, what you thought, what you've said, you're welcome. This is your home. Uh, I found it to be my home. Uh, with the visitors, welcome from California. Uh, I'm glad to have you. Hmm, where to start? When I came to AA, uh, I got sober shortly after I turned 21 here in Las Vegas. And I came in AA and, and I was beat. I was beat real bad. I tried everything out there that I could possibly imagine except for sticking a needle in my arm to fix my insides and to stop my head from racing. My last drunk occurred here in Las Vegas. Uh, lasted for three days and three nights. I don't remember what all we did, where all we went, but I know we did a lot of drinking. And uh, I'd been at the bottom for about a year. I just didn't know what was going on. And the next morning I woke up, and the thing that I, w I, had, I was starting to experience that morning, and it talks about in our big book, was the hideous four horsemen. Terror, bewilderment, frustration, and despair. And it felt like, uh, it felt like the world was caving in on me. And one more time I was wanting to run. But I knew I couldn't run that morning. And one more time I was wanting to hide. And I found out the only person I was hiding from was myself. And then one more time I tried to tell myself the old lie again. You know? And I couldn't lie to myself anymore that morning. I couldn't live a life. Uh, at that point, I was unable to work. I was unemployable. Uh, I started I started stealing a lot because of I was un, because I was unemployable to get the drugs and to get the booze. And I didn't steal from people I didn't know. I stole from people I knew. Because I wasn't a good thief. And I knew if I got caught, it'd be okay. I'd get a slap and I'd be turned away. And, uh, the next thought that entered my mind was, well, we can always, we can always end it right here. You know, and I started thinking about committing suicide. But the strange fact was that, that I'd been a failure at anything and everything that I ever tried growing up, and I was told that I was a failure. And the thought that came right behind suicide was, <laughs> what if it, what happens if you, if you lose it? What happens if you fail? How's it gonna look? See, at all costs, no matter how I felt on the inside, I tried to appear okay on the outside. Because I was raised like most people raised here in the United States, I was raised with pride. If you can't do it by yourself, you don't do it at all, you don't ask for help. 
and I was raised with the idea that uh, you don't, you aren't scared. And I was terrified. I was raised with the idea if you, if you had enough money in your pocket and a nice automobile and a pretty girl on your shoulder and had a good job that everything was okay. That that's all life wanted out of you. And at various times during my life I had all those things and still was, I was still miserable. I still had something missing. And that morning, when I was thinking about committing suicide, and then all of a sudden I realized that I couldn't do it, I tried I tried to crawl underneath my pillow. And all of a sudden, two hands came down on the back of my shoulders and started massaging the back of my shoulders. And I couldn't imagine who it might be, because it was real early in the morning. And I looked up, and here was an uncle that was living in Wyoming at the time. I didn't know why he was there. He didn't know why why he was there either. I later found out. But he knew, and I knew, when he looked into my eyes and said, Do you want to quit? I had no idea that he'd been sober in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous for 14 months. But see, I didn't hear him say quit drinking or quit using. What I heard him say is, do you want to quit feeling the way you're feeling? He didn't say anything about alcoholism. He didn't say anything about alcohol. And I says, yeah, what do I have to do? He says, well, we'll go to a meeting. And uh, I said, today? And he says, yeah. And the previous night, <clears throat> I had busted into a house of a friend and uh, stole some some pot. I was never a morning drinker. I'd get up with a bong and hit it about eight or nine times to level out. And I knew that I was feeling real sick that day, sicker than I'd ever felt. And the only re only way I knew how to get well was to get loaded one more time. And so I told him I'll go tomorrow, but not today. That famous old line of putting off putting off things that I could do today and then tomorrow. And that whole day I spent spent the day at the house. I was living at my mom's house. Uh, and I tried to get loaded that whole day and it didn't work. The booze quit working and the drugs quit working. And I didn't know what was taking place. See, the one big problem I had was alcohol and drugs were never a problem unless I didn't have any. They were a solution to my problem. Temporarily, they made my world okay. Temporarily, they made my insides okay. They quieted my mind. They shut the stomach up. You know? They buried the fear and the guilt and the remorse. They buried the child, the child life that I had growing up with two alcoholic parents that used to beat the hell out of each other every other night. Buried all them things. And finally they quit working. 
<laughs> you know, it was strange too because after I after I tried getting loaded the whole day, uh, the next thought was, man, I'm going to take the rest of this stuff back. It's not any good. The next day, my my uncle showed up and he showed up with another uncle. And he was nine months sober in the program. They're my mother's my mother's brothers. And they says, we're going to go to a meeting. Didn't say anything about Alcoholics Anonymous. They said, we're going to go to a meeting. They took me out to the Triangle, and uh, we were sitting inside, and the meeting hadn't started yet, and, and uh, I heard people start talking about about alcohol and stuff. And, and see, my idea of an alcoholic has always been somebody on Skid Row, with one gouache, a paper bag, and a raincoat. And the meeting started, and I heard him start talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. And I looked at my two uncles, and I thought, man, what are you guys doing? I'm not an alcoholic. And about halfway into the meeting, these people were sharing about about uh, their lives, and about what they had done, and they were laughing about it. People like you see in here tonight. And I kept looking around for that one guy in the galosh and a raincoat and the paper bag. I was wondering when they were going to bring him out. They were talking enough about him, you know. And part way into that meeting, uh, <clears throat> there's a guy that was about four months sober and, uh, he started talking about this program. And he broke down and he started crying. And he was sitting there begging me to stick around. He was begging me to stick around long enough to see what this thing was about. And see, I, I couldn't understand why he was crying. I couldn't understand why he was crying for me. Because if he knew me, he wouldn't be crying about me. You know, uh, and then we hooked up for the Lord's Prayer after the meeting, and <clears throat> what happened at my first meeting was something, something in that meeting touched something inside of me that I thought was dead, that I really didn't even know existed. A spark of the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous touched a little bit of spark in me that still wanted to live a little bit more than I wanted to die. And they took me home, and we went to another meeting that, that same night over to Duffy's. And uh, my head had cleared up a little bit, and I still hadn't been able to hear anything during the meeting. But the strange thing was, I, I felt like it was safe in here. I felt like it was okay to be here. I wasn't an alcoholic, and I certainly wasn't a drug addict. I kept going to meetings. Like I said, I was unemployable, and I, I totaled my last automobile on my last drunk. I didn't have a penny to my name, and what I did is I started going to AA meetings all day long and all night long, five, six meetings a week for about three solid months because it was safe in here, because it was protected, 
because I didn't have it together enough to do anything else but go to meetings. And uh, I hooked up with this same guy that I met at my first meeting. And he started carting me around to meetings. And he would take a dollar out of his pocket for me and stick it in a basket. He'd buy me breakfast. He'd buy me lunch. He'd buy me dinner. He'd take me out driving in his car and he'd plug in an A tape. And we'd sit there and listen to A tapes. And we'd, and we'd go home and we'd put on a pot of coffee and sit around and read the big book. And I'd sit there and lie to him and he'd sit there and laugh and go along with it. And I'd sit there and cry on his shoulder and he'd, he'd go along with it, you know. Uh, but see, I never understood, I never understood what makes an alcoholic an alcoholic. And what I come to understand here in Alcoholics Anonymous, it's not how much I drink, what I drank, where I drank, how old I am, what sex I am, or what race or creed or color I am that makes me an alcoholic. It's what alcohol does to me when I put it into my system that makes me an alcoholic. I had no idea when I first got sober that it was a disease. I thought it was weak will. And I come to find out that, uh, that I've got a mental obsession for alcohol. That means if, if I'm not drinking it, I'm thinking about drinking it, or I'm setting up different circumstances where I can drink it. Parties, football games, basketball games, fishing trips, you know. Anything that I planned had to have booze around it. It had to be the center. I remember going to parties, you know, and, and having to warm up before I got to the party. So I could, so I could lose the fear. So I could talk to people. And I didn't know that I had a mental obsession. That if I thought about alcohol long enough, it was the only thing that I could see in front of my face. And the only choice I had was to pick it up. And the next thing I learned that was that I've got a physical allergy to alcohol. That once I take any alcohol into my system whatsoever, this thing called a phenomenon of craving develops. I may drink just for a night, for two nights, three nights, weeks, months, years, until that craving satisfied. And I remember, I remember going to the bar Friday after work, dirty, sweaty, thinking about Friday night, going to go out, going to have a good time, going up there to cash my paycheck, just going to stop in, have two beers, go home, get showered, and go out. And the next thing I know, it's Sunday morning. I'm flat broke. I'm still in the same clothes. And I'm wondering how it happened. I didn't know that I had a physical allergy to it that I couldn't stop even if I wanted to stop once I started drinking. And see, the strange thing was, is I could have a couple beers during the week and nothing would happen. I thought. But what happened is it would set up the physical allergy. And once that physical allergy got so bad, 
I'd go on a binge. It didn't matter what I drank once I started drinking. It was a race to see how much booze I could get in me to bury the way I was feeling. I drank to feel good. I drank and used to feel good and for no other reason. I didn't know any of that when I came here. And see, the, the thing that, that I've come to understand, if I don't understand my disease, I have no need for the 12 steps. I have no need for God in my life. I just go to meetings and I don't drink and I die. Inside I die. Because I did it in here for a long time. I'd be dying at home, going nuts, and go to an AA meeting and put on a smile and fit in, or try to fit in, and act. I've always been a good actor. I've always been a, a, a pretty good at hiding my feelings. I didn't like drawing attention to myself when I felt bad, especially if you knew I felt bad. I was about four and a half months sober in this program, and I learned about my disease. I didn't learn about it in a book or in an A meeting. I experienced it. All of a sudden, all the resentments come back full bloom. My parents, my grandparents, old girlfriends, school teachers, uh, cops, brothers, people that I resented. I started reliving and refueling my past. And the only way I knew how to shut that off was to take a drink or get loaded. But see, I'd stuck around here long enough to know that uh, that's no longer a solution in my life. And I was staying at my granddad's house at the time, <clears throat> and I got in his automobile, and for three nights I drove circles around Las Vegas. Put over 340 miles on a car. And didn't go anyplace. And I ended up in a bar that I used to drink at. And I remember driving up there because I knew the bartender and I knew three-quarters of the people used to drink up there. And I was going in to shut my head off and to quiet my stomach. I wasn't going in to get drunk. I was going in to save my sanity. And I walked in there and uh, there was three people in there and I didn't know any of them. I didn't even know the bartender. First drink I bought was a Pepsi. And I sat and thought about it. And the last thing on my mind was to call another alcoholic, was to go to a meeting. Because the obsession had hit me square in the face, the drink. And I reached in my pocket to grab some money and what I pulled out was a three-month medallion. The only time that I'd ever carried one. 
haven't carried one since. And it was sitting in my hand, and I thought, well, it's your choice. You can drink, or you can go ask somebody for help. And see, that's one of the hardest things that I've had to overcome in this program is having to swallow my pride and my fear to go to somebody and say, hey, man, I'm dying. I'm hurting. Help me. And I left there and I went to an AA meeting. And at that time, I was running with a guy named Richard. Richards in Globe, Arizona now, and we'd go to meetings, and we'd go to coffee, and we'd talk about suicide sober. <laughs> Didn't know anything else, man, <laughs> you know? We could sit in meetings, and we could listen, and we could read the book, and we could listen to tapes, and we'd still go to coffee and talk about suicide. And he disappeared for a couple days, and... uh Next thing I knew, I was in, I went up to Duffy's and, uh, here he was sitting. And he had this grin from ear to ear. And I didn't understand it. There was something different about him. It had only been a couple days since I seen him. And I asked him, I says, okay, what happened? And he just looked at me with that smile. And I was ready to punch him. And he said, man, I took my steps. And I grabbed him by the shirt, and I says, good, we're going to go take mine. <laughs> I had no idea what the steps were. I just knew if he was feeling that way as a result of that, taking them steps, I was going to take them too, because, see, I'm an alcoholic. I like to feel good, and I'll go to any length to feel good. That may be selfish, but it's one thing that saved my life in here, you know. And so uh, the next afternoon... We got together with my granddad's, and we went through the big book, and uh, we didn't do a very good job. I understand today, but at the time, it was enough. It was an honest effort to face and be rid of the things in me that was blocking me off from the sunlight of the spirit. Resentment, fear, character defects. Uh, relationships, problems with sex. We take a look at all these things. And, uh, I don't know, it took us probably eight or nine hours to go through the first seven. And a lot of people don't believe that can be done here in Alcoholics Anonymous. But if you read Bill's story carefully in the front of the book, he goes through his first seven steps in the hospital after detoxing for seven days. Back then, they didn't have been too many meetings. Back there, they straighten him out in the hospital, run him through the steps, and send him out after another drunk. They didn't have time to mess around. They didn't have time to fellowship and go to meetings. And that's what happened. I took my steps. Nothing really happened. The one thing that did happen was that it was okay for me to finally look you in the eye. And that was a big deal for me. For the first time in my life, I was sitting in a meeting, 
and my head was on my shoulders and it was straight. I wasn't looking at your shoe tops. I wasn't looking at your knees. I wasn't looking at your waist. I was looking eye to eye. And it felt good for the first time. That evening, he took off. And uh, that evening, I went over to Duffy's. Duffy's was a 10-15 meeting. And when you got nothing to do and you ain't working, that's where you go. Especially on a full moon, man. Things happen over Duffy's. And so I walked in there. What happened after he left and uh, the time before the meeting, something real strange happened to me. I had a desire to get down on my knees and thank God for what had just happened. And by the time I hit that door, my feet weren't on the ground. I was set so free that uh, I wasn't here. I was, but I wasn't. Uh, I had never felt that way. I had never been that high behind any drug, behind any alcohol, behind any car, behind any amount of money, behind any girl, behind any job. And the only thing that made it possible was the 12 steps, 12 steps that are on the wall here and the power of God, which I did not understand at that time. And I ran around and I ran around and one thing that, that Richard didn't tell me about was steps 10, 11, and 12. I had no idea where 10, and 11, 10, 11, and 12 were. I thought, man, I'm feeling so good, nothing can happen. And due to the fact that I didn't I didn't have any understanding of 10, 11, and 12, uh, the bottom fell out. I wasn't taking my inventory daily. I wasn't praying and med meditating daily. And I wasn't trying to help another alcoholic or carry this message or practice these principles in all my affairs. And the bottom fell out. And so I blame the steps and the way he took me through them for being wrong. Because people started, I started hearing people in meetings that you can't go through those steps in that amount of time. You can't do that. And I started believing them. But the one thing that I couldn't deny is what happened to me when I went through them. And later, due to hindsight, I got to see why the bottom fell out. Because I wasn't fellowshipping with, with people that have been through the steps the same way I'd been through. I was out there in meetings trying to carry this message alone that I had little or no understanding of and nobody there to back me up. And I started giving in to the people that said, hey, it don't work that way. And I started believing them. Eventually, I went back through my steps again, a little different way, and the same thing occurred. You know, all my all my life, not just when I was drinking and using, but before I was drinking and using, I used to do things. And going into them, 
I knew they were wrong, but I didn't know how not to do them. Man, I remember going over to my grandparents knowing that I was going to steal. Knowing inside that I didn't want to do that. But yet knowing I was going to do it and not knowing how to stop it. Lying to friends and the family members, my parents. Knowing the truth, but not being able to say it and not understanding why. And that's how my whole life was before I came here and before I experienced them steps. I didn't know what made me do the things I did. And I found out through the fourth step that we took a fearless and moral inventory of ourselves. It doesn't say immoral inventory. It doesn't say that I write down every dirty, rotten thing that I ever did in my life. That's an immoral inventory. It says a moral inventory. Right and wrong. What are my bad, my bad character defects? And what are my good assets? What's my makeup? See, if you're an alcoholic like I was, most of the time, when I was drinking and using and having fun, I operated in a blackout. Now, if I had to write down every dirty, rotten thing I ever did, I'd have to have a lot of witnesses to tell me what I did because I didn't know most of the time what I was doing. Man, I remember driving hundreds of miles in a blackout, waking up not knowing how I got there. But what these people pointed out to me was what made you do these things? What made you lie? What made you steal? We don't care if you stole. We don't care if you've lied. We don't care if you've screwed around with another guy. What we want to know is, what made you do it? And I had to start looking at my character defects. Jealousy, envy, pride, fear, Negative thinking, vulgar, immoral thinking, that's not nothing to do with sex. It's having the thought of killing somebody. What else? Uh, Self-importance. How could they do that to me? Don't they know who I am? The world evolves around this kid, man. You know, where's that silver platter? Right? Yeah. Self-justification. If they only would have done this, I wouldn't be this way. I remember I was a thousand miles away from home and still blaming my family for the problems that I had. This guy looks me square in the face. He says, but your family's a thousand miles away. I said, yeah, but you don't understand. And after coming here, I, I was told anything after but's bullshit. <laughs> I had a lot of butts. Self-condemnation. One of my favorites. One of my all-time favorites. Self-condemnation and self-pity. It was warm. Walled in that stuff. Cried. Got my way through all that stuff. 
Self-condemnation, for those who don't know about self-condemnation, is having, having my own boot up my rear end, kicking myself in the rear for the way I've done things, for the way I've thought, for the way I've been, for the things I haven't done. And I had to take a look at all this stuff. And then we got into fears. God, I found out I was afraid of everything. And the one big one I didn't want to admit was afraid of the dark. Who's afraid of the dark? Everybody. Everybody. And uh, then, then we got into problems with the relationships. And I found out that they're all, all one way. What could I get out of it? I didn't know that. I didn't want it to be that way, but that's the way it was. And I got to take a look at all this, and, and all of it stemmed back to one character defect. Fear. False evidence appearing real, or the one that I really like the best that describes me as a frantic effort to arrange reality. And I was out there trying to arrange, re, arrange my own life the way I thought it ought to be. And no matter who was in my way, who was there, I knew what I, I needed in my life. I knew what I wanted. And if you stood in the way, that was too bad. You're going to get hurt. And if you're living that way, you run through a lot of people's lives. To see all them other character defects fed my fear. Especially for, especially pride. You know? I was always afraid of losing something that I thought I possessed. <laughs> what a joke, huh? I've never possessed anything. I don't own a thing. But I've come to understand that everything I, I have is a gift. You know? I, I was taking credit for this being. But yet I don't have the power to draw my own breath. And any talent that I do have is God-given. I can't manufacture it. Or the other fear is afraid of not getting something I want. And that's when I throw the little temper tantrum. You know? Those two types of fears led me into everything I got into. And they snowballed with all my character defects. Fear set the ball rolling in every instance of my life. And I found out that the only reason I had fear was that I was relying upon myself for everything. And the big book talks about it in the fourth chapter that, that the primary purpose of this whole book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself which will solve your problem. And that means we're going to talk about God. When I was, when I was going through all this, uh, I realized how real it was for the first time in my life. And I remember somebody telling me one day, uh, if your problem's real, 
God better be. Because if God's not real, you're stuck with a big problem. And then the third step, Lord's leading us, so I don't know which way we're going. So in the third step, uh, it says, we made a decision to turn our will and our lives over the care of God as we understood him. I didn't understand that. As we understood him. No, was asked, who's the we that we're talking about? Right here. You were there when the book was written? I said, no. Then you weren't included in the we, were you? I said, no. And they says, well, start looking. And tell us what you find. And I started going back to some of the books that... uh a has down. Dr. Bob and the Good Old Timers. Pass it on. Uh, and a few others. And even some of the personal stories in the back of the book. And they talked about a God that I didn't want to have anything to do with. Because that meant church. <laughs> you know? That meant reforming. That meant being good. That meant not getting my way. That meant discipline. All the things that I couldn't stand. And I finally decided to try it. Because what I'd done is I got myself into a relationship. I was nine months sober. The girl was just turned a year, so it made it okay. She was a year sober. I'd never, never been out on my own. I'd never paid any bills ever on my own. I'd never worked at a job more than a couple weeks. I'd never lived with a girl. I mean, I'd spent the night drunk, but that was it. And here I was, out on my own, paying my own bills, living with a girl that was nine years older than I was. Neither one of us had little or no program. I wasn't practicing 10, 11, and 12. And we stopped communicating. We had a silent argument, is what we had. <laughs> we were living in the same apartment, and uh, she closed one door, and I closed the other. And for two solid weeks, I sat on my bed and died. Couldn't move. I was gripped with the one thing that's always killed me, and that's fear. But I kept hearing this little voice saying, go to the mountain, go to the mountain. I listened to it for two weeks, and I finally decided to get up off my bed and go to the mountain. It was December. I got dressed and put on my warm clothes, and I drove up Mount Charleston. And I almost stopped three different times on the way up to bury the fear. But I knew that I couldn't do it. And that night, I turned my will and my life over the care of God as we understood him. And what happened, I was sitting up there on the mountain, and a full moon was out, and it was cold, and the Big Dipper was right next to the full moon. And I said, okay, if you're real, you've got to do something for me. 
you've got to remove this from me. And just as I said that, it was like somebody poured a bucket of water through the top of my head and it come out my eyes. And shortly after that, I heard that voice say, it's okay now. Go to an AA meeting. And I walked into an AA meeting and a guy saw me walk in and he knew I was hurt. He grabbed me a cup of coffee says, sit. Since that day to this day, I have not been in that type of pain. I haven't been that immobilized from that type of fear since that day. Because I, I turn my will and my life over to care of God as, as I understand Him today. And He set me free from that fear. And the one thing that He gave me back was love. The one thing that I've been looking in a jug, in drugs, and girls, and cars, money, anything that I could I, I could put my hands on, I was looking for his love. And I didn't know it. I was looking in all the wrong places and all the wrong faces. And then the, the worst thing about it was I didn't know what I was looking for. I had to have somebody show me what I was looking for. And I thank God that people were honest enough with me when I came around. I remember going to meetings shortly before I took my steps the second time. And I'd hear a little bit, you know, you hear an A, take what you like and leave the rest. And I'd go to A meetings and I'd hear this person say that. And I said, hmm, record. Right? And I'd hear this person say that, and I said, hmm, record. And this person say that, and push record. And then I go to a meeting, and I push play. Right? And I was in a meeting one night, and this guy walks up to me after the meeting, and uh, he's got one of them grins. He says, Rick, how much of what you say do you really believe? And he nailed me. I didn't have any reply. See, all my life I was living on what you thought or what you believed. Your opinion. I had no substance, no meaning for my life. And I, and I was, I was always wondering what this thing was called life and where I thought, where I fit in. I remember going over to my granddad's and every time just before I left he said, T, remember who you are. And it used to get me so angry because that little light would go on above my head and say, man, who am I? No idea. And what I've learned since, since coming here is I still don't know who I am. The only thing that I'm learning here is who I'm not. God's the only one that knows who I'm going to be, you know. It's just, it's just my job to find out who I'm not and who I don't want to be and get rid of it promptly and without regret and to share that with you. Today I go to church. I love church. It's a ball. About half of our congregation are all alcoholics. We get done with the singing 
and everybody goes outside for a smoke break, coffee and donuts. Then we go back in for the service. We got the pastor who's been studying the big book for the last two years. He knew nothing about alcoholism or alcoholics at all. And he's trying to incorporate the 12 steps into the church body. My life has really changed. Uh, and I can't take any credit at all for a change. Because I just came here beat. I came here whipped. And I came here with a desire to want to feel better. And that was it. And the one thing that I've learned uh, about desire, desire means of the Father. And it comes from God. And so I can't even take credit for the desire I've got in my heart. It's not mine. But yet I still try to. At times I still try to. At times I still try to pat myself on the back. At times I still look for your approval. And the times that I'm doing that is the times I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. Simple. Real simple. I love 12-step work. Uh, I've done a lot of 12-step work. And the neat thing that I've learned about 12-step work is on page 164. It talks about if your own house is in order, that you will be able to help others. And you'll be able to see a fellowship grow about you. See, I've had the fortunate, I've been fortunate enough to be able to take, take people through the steps. And to know them before that change takes place. And to see them grow after that change takes place. I believe in modern-day miracles. We're all a bunch of walking miracles. I believe in the power of God. More than anything else, I believe in the power of God. Because time and time again, after falling on my face, he's waved that little carrot in front of my face. You know? It's over here. Not over there. All you got to do is do what I say, and this will happen. Just like an AA. You do this, and you get this. Uh, the gratitude that I have for this program, and for the things that's done in my life, and the lives of my family, and the lives of my friends, and the lives of the people that I've met and been able to see go through the steps, is something that keeps me alive more than anything. Because I've been given the privilege as an alcoholic to take part in a miracle take part in a healing, to take part in God's grace and his love, and then from where I come from, and the way I used to be, 
jazz the blessing. And I still rant and rave about what I don't have and what I want and what it could be like and wonder where she's at and wonder, wonder when God's going to give me this little picture of when all this thing's going to unfold and where I'm supposed to be and what am I supposed to be doing and where's the house. And but when I really get down to it, man, uh, I've got more today than I ever dreamed of. And my riches aren't stored here on earth. They're stored where nobody can steal them. Where they won't be corroded. Where they can't rust. And uh, that's the neat thing about, about this whole deal. That no matter what happens in my life today, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay because I've been set free, set free from this world and put in touch with another one that keeps me alive, safe, and sober, and my life full of love and of laughter and of joy and the most important thing, hope. I don't have a whole lot materially, but the things I have I cherish. You know, I got to take my two younger brothers out on a boat ride in March this year tonight, celebrating two years. Got to take them out on a boat ride today, and I had one little brother, he's only four, he'd never been on a boat. And I had more fun with watching that little kid and his expressions than anything else, man. I mean, he was cracking me up. Uh... Because I look back on my child life, you know, and and I know things had to go the way they had to go. But I'd like to see him go a different way. And to see him laugh and, and be free with himself openly just turns my insides on, you know. Uh, I'd like to thank Gary for asking me to speak and also Amos, wherever he is. Uh, I'd like to thank Skip for sharing the meeting and for also uh, doing me a little favor. I love you. I'd also like to wish Mark happy two years. And we care, buddy, whether you think so or not. Uh, and I'd like to thank everybody here for for being here for me tonight. Uh, it's done me a hell of a lot of good. It really has. Uh, and I just hope and pray that, that everybody in here can find what I found. Can't buy it. Can't sell it. Can't steal it. You can only give it away. And each time you give it away, it gets a little better. <laughs> and for a selfish, feel-good alcoholic like me, that's okay, you know. With that, uh, I'd like to thank you. I really do. Uh, and I'll turn it back over to Gary.